gentle creatures, and welcome back to the History Obscura Reading Room. I do hope you have your cups of tea ready, and your little biscuits too. Let's get back to the reading of Ten Days in a Madhouse, shall we? Chapter 3 In the Temporary Home I was left to begin my career as Nellie Brown, the insane girl. As I walked down the avenue, I tried to assume the look which maidens wear in pictures entitled Dreaming. Faraway expressions have a crazy air. I passed through the little paved yard to the entrance of the home. I pulled the bell, which sounded loud enough for a church chime and nervously awaited the opening of the door to the home, which I intended should ere long cast me forth and out upon the charity of the police. The door was thrown back with a vengeance, and a short, yellow-haired girl of some thirteen summers stood before me. Is the matron in? I asked, faintly. Yes, she's in. She's busy. Go to the back parlor answered the girl in a loud voice, without one change in her peculiarly matured face. I followed these not over-kind or polite instructions and found myself in a dark, uncomfortable back parlor. There, I awaited the arrival of my hostess. I had been seated some twenty minutes in the least when a slender woman, clad in a plain, dark dress, entered and, stopping before me, ejaculated inquiringly, Well? Are you the matron? I asked. No, she replied. The matron is sick. I am her assistant. What do you want? I want to stay here for a few days, if you can accommodate me. Well, I have no single rooms, we are so crowded. But if you will occupy a room with another girl... I shall do that much for you. I shall be glad of that, I answered. How much do you charge? I had brought only about seventy cents along with me, knowing full well that the sooner my funds were exhausted, the sooner I should be put out. And to be put out was what I was working for. We charge thirty cents a night, was her reply to my question, and with that I paid her for one night's lodging and she left me on the plea of having something else to look after. Left to amuse myself as best I could, I took a survey of my surroundings. They were not cheerful, to say the least. A wardrobe, desk, bookcase, organ, and several chairs completed the furnishment of the room, into which the daylight barely came. By the time I had become familiar with my quarters, a bell, which rivaled the doorbell in its loudness, began clanging in the basement, and simultaneously women went trooping downstairs from all parts of the house. I imagined from the obvious signs that dinner was served, but as no one had said anything to me, I made no effort to follow in the hungry train. Yet I did wish that someone would invite me down. It always produces such a lonely, homesick feeling to know others are eating, and we haven't a chance, even if we are not hungry. 
I was glad when the assistant matron came up and asked me if I did not want something to eat. I replied that I did, and then I asked her what her name was. Mrs. Stannard, she said, and I immediately wrote it down in a notebook I had taken with me for the purpose of making memoranda, and in which I had written several pages of utter nonsense for inquisitive scientists. Thus equipped, I awaited developments, but my dinner, well, I followed Mrs. Stannard down the uncarpeted stairs into the basement, where a large number of women were eating. She found room for me at a table with three other women. The short-haired Slavi who had opened the door now put in an appearance as waiter. Placing her arms akimbo and staring me out of countenance, she said, Boiled mutton? Boiled beef? Beans? Potatoes? Coffee or tea? Beef, potatoes, coffee, and bread, I responded. Bread goes in, she explained as she made her way to the kitchen, which was in the rear. It was not very long before she returned with what I had ordered on a large, badly battered tray, which she banged down before me. I began my simple meal. It was not very enticing, so while making a feint of eating, I watched the others. I have often moralized on the repulsive form charity always assumes. Here was a home for deserving women, and yet what a mockery the name was. The floor was bare, and the little wooden tables were sublimely ignorant of such modern beautifiers as varnish, polish, and table covers. It is useless to talk about the cheapness of linen and its effect on civilization. Yet these honest workers, the most deserving of women, are asked to call this spot of bareness home. When the meal was finished, each woman went to the desk in the corner where Mrs. Stenard sat and paid her bill. I was given a much-used and abused red check by the original piece of humanity in shape of my waitress. My bill was about 30 cents. After dinner, I went upstairs and resumed my former place in the back parlor. I was quite cold and uncomfortable, and had fully made up my mind that I could not endure that sort of business long, so the sooner I assumed my insane points, the sooner I would be released from enforced idleness. Ah, that was indeed the longest day I have ever lived. I listlessly watched the women in the front parlor, where all sat except myself. One did nothing but read and scratch her head, and occasionally call out mildly, Georgie, without lifting her eyes from her book. Georgie was her over-frisky boy, who had more noise in him than any child I ever saw before. He did everything that was rude and unmannerly. I thought, and the mother never said a word unless she heard someone else yell at him. Another woman always kept going to sleep and waking herself up with her own snoring. I really felt wickedly thankful that it was only herself she awakened. The majority of the women sat there doing nothing, but there were a few who made lace and knitted unceasingly. 
The enormous doorbell seemed to be going all the time, and so did the short-haired girl. The latter was, besides, one of those girls who sing all the time snatches of all the songs and hymns that have been composed for the last 50 years. There is such a thing as martyrdom in these days. The ringing of the bell brought more people who wanted shelter for the night. Excepting one woman, who was from the country on a day's shopping expedition, they were working women, some of them with children. As it drew toward evening, Mrs. Stannard came to me and said, What is wrong with you? Have you some sorrow or trouble? No, I said, almost stunned at the suggestion. Why? Oh, because, she said, womanlike, I can see it in your face. It tells the story of a great trouble. Yes, everything is so sad. I said in a haphazard way, which I had intended to reflect my craziness. But you must not allow that to worry you. We all have our troubles, but we get over them in good time. What kind of work are you trying to get? I do not know. It is all so sad, I replied. Would you like to be a nurse for children and wear a white cap and apron? I put my handkerchief up to my face to hide a smile, and replied in a muffled tone, I never worked. I don't know how. But you must learn, she urged. All these women here work. Do they? I said in a low, thrilling whisper. Why, they look horrible to me, just like crazy women. I am so afraid of them. They don't look very nice, she answered, assentingly, but they are good, honest, working women. We do not keep crazy people here. I again used my handkerchief to hide a smile, as I thought that before morning she would at least think she had one crazy person among her flock. They all look crazy, I asserted again, and I am afraid of them. There are so many crazy people about and one can never tell what they will do. Then there are so many murders committed, and the police never catch the murderers. And I finished with a sob that would have broken up an audience of blasé critics. She gave a sudden and convulsive start, and I knew my first stroke had gone home. It was amusing to see what a remarkably short time it took her to get up from her chair and to whisper hurriedly, I'll come back to talk with you after a while. I knew she would not come back, and she did not. When the supper bell rang, I went along with the others to the basement and partook of the evening meal, which was similar to dinner, except that there was a smaller bill of fare and more people. The women who are employed outside during the day, having returned, after the evening meal, we all adjourned to the parlors, where we all sat or stood, as there were not chairs enough to go round. It was a wretchedly lonely evening, and the light which fell from the solitary gas jet in the parlor and oil lamp in the hall helped to envelop us in a dusky hue and dye our spirits navy blue. 
I felt it would not require many inundations of this atmosphere to make me a fit subject for the place I was striving to reach. I watched two women, who seemed of all the crowd to be the most sociable, and I selected them as the ones to work out my salvation, or more properly speaking, my condemnation and conviction. Excusing myself and saying that I felt lonely, I asked if I might join their company. They graciously consented, so with my hat and gloves on, which no one had asked me to lay aside, I sat down and listened to the rather wearisome conversation in which I took no part, merely keeping up my sad look, saying yes, or no, or I can't say, to their observations. Several times I told them I thought everybody in the house looked crazy, but they were slow to catch on to my very original remark. One said her name was Mrs. King, and that she was a southern woman. Then she said that I had a southern accent. She asked me bluntly if I did not really come from the south. I said yes. The other woman got to talking about the Boston boats and asked me if I knew at what time they left. For a moment I forgot my role of assumed insanity and told her the correct hour of departure. She then asked me what work I was going to do or if I had ever done any. I replied that I thought it very sad that there were so many working people in the world. She said in reply that she had been unfortunate and had come to New York, where she had worked at correcting proofs on a medical dictionary for some time, but that her health had given way under the task and that she was now going to Boston again. When the maid came to tell us to go to bed, I remarked that I was afraid and again ventured the assertion that all the women in the house seemed to be crazy. The nurse insisted on my going to bed. I asked if I could not sit on the stairs, but she said decisively, No, for everyone in the house would think you were crazy. Finally, I allowed them to take me to a room. Here, I must introduce a new personage by name into my narrative. It is the woman who had been a proofreader and was about to return to Boston. She was a Mrs. Kane, who was as courageous as she was good-hearted. She came into my room and sat and talked with me a long time, taking down my hair with gentle ways. She tried to persuade me to undress and go to bed but I stubbornly refused to do so. During this time, a number of the inmates of the house had gathered around us. They expressed themselves in various ways. Poor Loon, they said. Why, she's crazy enough. I am afraid to stay with such a crazy being in the house. She will murder us all before morning. One woman was sending for a policeman to take me at once. They were all in a terrible and real state of fright. No one wanted to be responsible for me, and the woman who was to occupy the room with me declared that she would not stay with that crazy woman for all the money of the Vanderbilts. It was then that Mrs. Kane said she would stay with me. 
I told her I would like to have her do so. So she was left with me. She didn't undress, but lay down on the bed, watchful of my movements. She tried to induce me to lie down, but I was afraid to do this. I knew that if I once gave way, I should fall asleep and dream as pleasantly and peacefully as a child. I should, to use a slang expression, be liable to give myself dead away. So, I insisted on sitting on the side of the bed and staring blankly at vacancy. My poor companion was put into a wretched state of unhappiness. Every few moments she would rise up to look at me. She told me that my eyes shone terribly brightly and then began to question me, asking me where I had lived, how long I had been in New York, what had I been doing, and many things besides. To all her questionings, I had but one response. I told her that I had forgotten everything, that ever since my headache had come on, I could not remember. Poor soul, how cruelly I tortured her, and what a kind heart she had. But how I tortured all of them. One of them dreamed of me as a nightmare. After I had been in the room an hour or so, I was myself startled by hearing a woman screaming in the next room. I began to imagine that I was really in an insane asylum. Mrs. Kane woke up, looked around, frightened, and listened. She then went out and into the next room, and I heard her asking another woman some questions. When she came back, she told me that the woman had had a hideous nightmare. She'd been dreaming of me. She had seen me, she said, rushing at her with a knife in my hand, with the intention of killing her. In trying to escape me, she had fortunately been able to scream, and so to awaken herself and scare off her nightmare. Then Mrs. Kane got into bed again, considerably agitated, but very sleepy. I was weary, too. But I had braced myself up to the work, and was determined to keep awake all night so as to carry on my work of impersonation to a successful end in the morning. I heard midnight. I had yet six hours to wait for daylight. The time passed with excruciating slowness. Minutes appeared hours. The noises in the house and on the avenue ceased. Fearing that sleep would coax me into its grasp, I commenced to review my life. How strange it all seems. One incident, if never so trifling, is but a link more to chain us to our unchangeable fate. I began at the beginning, and lived again the story of my life. Old friends were recalled with a pleasurable thrill. Old enmities, old heartaches old joys were once again present. The turned down pages of my life were turned up, and the past was present. When it was completed, I turned my thoughts bravely to the future, wondering, first, what the next day would bring forth, then making plans for the carrying out of my project. I wondered if I should be able to pass over the river to the goal of my strange ambition, 
to become eventually an inmate of the halls inhabited by my mentally wrecked sisters. And then, once in, what would be my experience? And after? How to get out? Bah, I said. They will come and get me out. That was the greatest night of my existence. For a few hours, I stood face to face with self. I looked out toward the window and hailed with joy the slight shimmer of dawn. The light grew strong and gray, but the silence was strikingly still. My companion slept. I had still an hour or two to pass over. Fortunately, I found some employment for my mental activity. Robert Bruce, in his captivity, had won confidence in the future, and passed his time as pleasantly as possible under the circumstances, by watching the celebrated spider building his web. I had less noble vermin to interest me, yet I believe I made some valuable discoveries in natural history. I was about to drop off to sleep in spite of myself, when I was suddenly startled to wakefulness. I thought I heard something crawl and fall down upon the counterpane with an almost inaudible thud. I had the opportunity of studying these interesting animals very thoroughly. They had evidently come for breakfast, and were not a little disappointed to find that their principal plat was not there. They scampered up and down the pillow, came together, seemed to hold interesting converse, and acted in every way as if they were puzzled by the absence of an appetizing breakfast. After one consultation of some length, they finally disappeared, seeking victims elsewhere, and leaving me to pass the long minutes by giving my attention to cockroaches, whose size and agility were something of a surprise to me. My room companion had been sound asleep for a long time, but she now woke up and expressed surprise at seeing me still awake and apparently as lively as a cricket. She was as sympathetic as ever. She came to me and took my hands and tried her best to console me, and asked me if I did not want to go home. She kept me upstairs until nearly everybody was out of the house, and then took me down to the basement for coffee and a bun. After that, partaken in silence, I went back to my room, where I sat down, moping. Mrs. Kane grew more and more anxious. What is to be done? She kept exclaiming. Where are your friends? No, I answered. I have no friends, but I have some trunks. Where are they? I want them. The good woman tried to pacify me, saying that they would be found in good time. She believed that I was insane. Yet, I forgive her. It is only after one is in trouble that one realizes how little sympathy and kindness there are in the world. The women in the home, who were not afraid of me, had wanted to have some amusement at my expense, and so they had bothered me with questions and remarks that had I been insane would have been cruel and inhuman. Only this one woman among the crowd pretty and delicate Mrs. Kane displayed true womanly feeling. 
She compelled the others to cease teasing me and took the bed of the woman who refused to sleep near me. She protested against the suggestion to leave me alone and to have me locked up for the night so that I could harm no one. She insisted on remaining with me in order to administer aid should I need it. She smoothed my hair and bathed my brow and talked as soothingly to me as a mother would do to an ailing child. By every means she tried to have me go to bed and rest, and when it drew toward morning she got up and wrapped a blanket around me for fear I might get cold. Then she kissed me on the brow and whispered, compassionately, Poor child, poor child. How much I admired that little woman's courage and kindness. How I longed to reassure her and whisper that I was not insane, and how I hoped that, if any poor girl should ever be so unfortunate as to be what I was pretending to be, she might meet with the one who possessed the same spirit of human kindness possessed by Mrs. Ruth Kane.